Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. PFAS chemicals have contaminated sites around New England. But when a World War II-era bomber crashed at an airport in Connecticut, firefighters did not hesitate to use foam containing the chemicals. You had a plane crash, you had fatalities, you had people injured, you had a lot of fire. There was no option. It had to be used. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll weigh saving lives in the moment against long-term health effects due to PFAS exposure. And co-housing is a type of intentional community that originated in Denmark and has spread around the U.S. A resident makes his case for living in co-housing. Everything from sharing resources reasonably, like lawnmowers and trucks that you need to take to the dump, but at the same time um, having your own private space. Plus, there's a lot we get wrong about the pilgrims. They actually came to America partly to establish the opposite of religious freedom. We'll talk about that and misconceptions about Thanksgiving. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Patrick Scahill. Thanks for joining us. It's a class of chemicals with a name as hard to pronounce as it is to understand, per- and polyfluoralkyl substances. That's the full name for a family of thousands of chemicals known more commonly as PFAS. Called forever chemicals, these compounds persist in our bodies and the environment. And they're in products we use all the time, everything from pizza boxes to nonstick cookware to raincoats. This fall, New Hampshire's strict new limits on PFAS chemicals in drinking water went into effect, but now the state is being sued over those limits. The lawsuit is spearheaded by 3M, the chemical company that helped invent PFAS. Their partners in New Hampshire include a cattle farmer, a fertilizer company, and a town water utility. New Hampshire Public Radio's Annie Ropeek takes a deep look at the state's regulations and the case building against them. On a recent day in Concord, a small crowd stood protesting outside Merrimack Superior Court. They held up signs that said things like, shame on 3M, as groups of lawyers walked past. What do we want? Clean water! When do we want it? Now! Former state representative turned executive counsel candidate Mindy Messmer set up this protest. She sponsored the bill that led state regulators this year to set the strictest PFAS limits of their kind in the country the same limits 3M would be in court that day to oppose. This is clear corporate greed. They should not be able to decide what we should drink. PFAS were widely used until the mid-2000s to make nonstick pans, waterproof clothes, military-grade firefighting foam, and many other products. And they've been linked to serious health effects, high cholesterol, kidney, liver, and thyroid issues, developmental delays and pregnancy problems, maybe even some cancers. There is evidence for all these connections, but the scientific consensus around them is still being established. That's partly why, at first, New Hampshire was less aggressive and more moderate in the PFAS limits it proposed. The state declined an interview for this story, but officials have said in the past that what tipped the scale toward tighter standards was one particular study from Minnesota. My name is Helen Gayden. My title is, uh, I guess, senior toxicologist and risk assessor here at the Minnesota Department of Health. 
3M, the chemical company, was actually founded in Minnesota. It's one of the M's in their name. That's put scientists like Helen Gaydon on the front lines of the PFAS issue longer than most, since the early 2000s, when the chemicals turned up in drinking water near 3M's Minnesota facilities. Over time, she says she and other scientists realized how ubiquitous and persistent PFAS is and that it could cause problems at far lower levels than most chemicals. In many ways, it may have appeared that the problem was getting worse, but actually it was our knowledge was improving. They also learned these chemicals can build up for years in the human body. That could be one reason they pose added health risks. Eventually, Gaydon says her team started to see that drinking water was not the only way people could be exposed. Studies were finding that exposed mothers could pass PFAS on to their babies in utero and through breast milk. So Gaydon's team wrote a model. It estimates how much PFAS can be transferred from mothers to babies and how that contributes to lifelong PFAS levels in children's bodies. It looked like it was important and it was a significant contributor. In New Hampshire, the bill mandating the new drinking water standards specifically required them to protect against early childhood risks. Critics of the new rules wanted more say in how the state used the Minnesota model. But Gaydon says you don't have to be too aggressive with it to get alarming results. She says in public health, officials take a conservative approach, even with early data showing the chemicals are unsafe. So typically from a public health perspective, we do not wait until there's conclusive evidence of, yes, this is damages health. That's not always the approach for people outside her field. For one thing, when it comes to federal regulation of chemicals like PFAS, the U.S. policy is to wait for more explicit evidence of harm before cracking down. And while federal scientists are growing more concerned about the potential health effects of PFAS, and other states like Michigan, New York, and Vermont are writing their own enforceable standards, many who will be most affected by following those regulations aren't convinced. Charlie Hansen is the cattle farmer from Center Harbor who joined the 3M lawsuit against New Hampshire. His hay fields are fertilized with what are called biosolids. Yes, that's human sewage, dried out, cleaned up, and turned into mulch. It doesn't bother Hansen at all. We have what I call fecal aversion syndrome. You know, people go to the bathroom, they close the door, and, you know, it's like discreet and everything. And I, I get that. But the reality is... Um, These are great sources of nutrients when used appropriately. The main reason Hansen is worried about New Hampshire's PFAS standards is that the biosolids he uses come from wastewater treatment plants. They're not currently required to treat for PFAS, which can wind up concentrated in what we flush down our toilets, the same stuff that's used to make this fertilizer. It means people like Hansen are typically spreading at least low levels of PFAS on their fields. More and more, biosolids users are being accused of causing drinking water contamination in New Hampshire and other states. Hansen worries that tighter regulations will put people like him on the hook unfairly for even more PFAS cleanup. We've lived with these chemicals for, what, 70 years? I don't know how much of an impact they make. doesn't seem like a lot. And to just start taking rash actions I don't think is prudent based on what the actual risk is. Hansen's biosolid supplier is RMI, a fertilizer company in Holderness. He's also on RMI's board with its president, Sheila Connolly. The company is also part of the 3M suit. Connolly argues there's just not enough data to convince her that it's worth making the changes the state estimates will cost towns and businesses tens of millions of dollars. We are rushing to say we're going to implement these standards just to be safe. And I say to you, well, do you know what it's going to cost just to be safe? The biggest immediate cost will be for local water utilities. 
That's why the Plymouth Water and Sewer District is the final plaintiff in the 3M suit. Superintendent Jason Randall says it's hard to imagine eradicating PFAS from his system single-handedly, since the chemicals were, and in some cases still are, found in so many commonly used products. There's habits that we need to change as a society in order to make um, these regulations and uh, and the levels um, permitted acceptable and and viable uh, for our communities. 3M helped put these PFAS-based products like Teflon and Gore-Tex into Americans' lives. And they initiated the lawsuit against New Hampshire and invited all these local parties to join. The company didn't want to be interviewed, but says in a statement, quote, We believe the development of drinking water standards should follow appropriate regulatory processes and be supported by the best available science, end quote. They say New Hampshire didn't do either of those things in writing its new rules. Public water systems, including Plymouth's, will have to file their first quarterly PFAS testing results by the end of next month. From there, they'll get a sense of how much treatment might cost. And more money could come through for that in the future, from the state legislature or federal grants or through court. New Hampshire itself is joining dozens of other states, towns and people suing 3M and other chemical companies for allegedly causing all this contamination. Here again, New Hampshire takes a cue from Minnesota. That state got $850 million in a water contamination settlement with 3M last year. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Annie Ropeek. On Tuesday, a judge ruled that New Hampshire would have to stop implementing its strict PFAS limits on December 31st. The judge's ruling did not take immediate effect, giving all parties time to appeal the decision with the state Supreme Court. When a World War II-era bomber crashed and caught fire on a Connecticut runway last month and seven people died, first responders fought the blaze with a special type of firefighting foam called AFFF. That's short for aqueous film-forming foam. That foam contains PFAS. Christopher Albany is one of several firefighters who responded to the crash at Bradley International Airport and used it. So in that moment, being exposed to it, I mean, guys were covered head to toe in the stuff. AFFF smothers hot-burning fires, extinguishing flames better than just water. At the time, Albany says first responders didn't have time to think about its health risks. You had a plane crash, you had fatalities, you had people injured, you had a lot of fire. There was no option. It had to be used. The foam is required by the Federal Aviation Administration because of its effectiveness against fuel fires. But at the same time, the Environmental Protection Agency says there's emerging evidence some of its chemicals are toxic to humans and the environment. Kevin Dillon is executive director of the Connecticut Airport Authority, which oversees Bradley. He's concerned about potential health issues, but says even if he wanted to get rid of the foam, federal law says he can't. If we want to continue to operate Bradley Airport under our FAA certification, we have to utilize this foam. We have to have this foam in our firefighting equipment. Dylan says commercial airports across the country are trying to come to grips with what to do with this mandated foam. But we're airport operators. We're not chemical experts. And we have to rely on the science uh, that's provided to us and to the FAA that will determine, yes, this truly is a hazardous substance. Right now, the fact that the EPA has not declared it a hazardous substance puts even the FAA, I think, in a difficult position. The EPA is considering listing two PFAS compounds, PFOA and PFAS, as hazardous substances. That listing hasn't happened. Policy and science can both be slow. Meanwhile, firefighter Christopher Albany says the PFAS-containing foam is used because it's effective, but he worries about its risks. 
We don't want to get an environment. We know, we know the effects of it, and we try to use it for just really emergency operations only. The FAA says commercial airports should no longer use these foams for testing or training, and that it's actively working to begin phasing them out at commercial airports by October 2021. It's also working on a replacement foam at its testing facility in New Jersey. After the B-17 crashed at Bradley, some of the PFAS in the firefighting foam washed out of the airport and into nearby communities. Patty Abramowitz, who lives a five-minute drive from the airport, says a few days after the crash, she was walking by the brook in her backyard. On the water, she saw piles of firefighting foam, more than 10 feet high. It looked like a washing machine had exploded, and it was coming over both banks of the, the brook. And it was like, oh, my God. So what's the best way to balance the needs of those in immediate danger against potential long-term risks to the environment and human health? Joining us to explore this question is David Resnick, a bioethicist at the National Institutes of Health. David, welcome to Next. Thank you for having me. So, David, as a bioethicist, how do you look at the situation at Bradley? On the one hand, we have a, there's a fire. It needs to be put out as fast as possible. Uh, on the other hand, we have potential long-term threats to first responders, neighbors, and the environment. So w- what's a fair solution here? It's really not an easy issue to get a hold of. If it were, we would uh, have a quick solution to it. But I, I think the first step is to carefully consider the conflicting values that are at stake and also to consider different options for trying to reach a um, reasonable compromise. A lot of times that can be uh, happen when you look at a conflict like this. Do you see any middle ground on the issue of, of PFAS firefighting foam? Well, I think there's potentially a middle ground if we could agree that, um, you know, we should avoid PFAS most of the time for things that are not so um, important for human health. Um, I think possibly if, you know, we could still allow it to be used, say, for firefighting and things like that, where there are lives that are clearly at risk, including the lives of the firefighters. Um, of course, I think another compromise, if you're going to use uh, this foam, it's why not make sure you have some kind of environmental protections already in place, like around construction sites, you see all kinds of fences and things to try to keep hazardous waste out of streams and things like that. I know, obviously, when you have a fire, things are happening very fast. But I just wonder if there's any way that we could think of ways to contain this chemical if we're going to use it so the environmental and public health disruption is is not so great. Are there other examples that are top of mind for you where emergent health effects of a product have become evident to us and and policy has shifted as a result of that? Well, one of those, I think, is the the situation with bisphenol A or BPA, where we have um, begun to learn about some of the adverse effects of this chemical for human health and the environment. And... um, we haven't actually banned BPA in, in the United States, except some countries have. We have a ban on BPA in um, uh, baby cups and things like that. But what we've seen actually is that there's been a great response by uh, consumers and manufacturers. So a, a lot of products you see today will say BPA-free and, and they will be marketed as such. So there has been some progress on that score in terms of getting rid of BPA. 
one of the drawbacks of that is is that um, of products that are being substituted, chemicals that are being substituted for BPA, a lot of them are very similar to BPA. And so they may be just as dangerous as BPA for human health and the environment. We need to study those risks a lot more, but we may we may not have made much of an improvement in that situation, although we have had some change. When we find products that are identified as having health risks or there are products that are identified as having emerging health risks um, and, and policy um, conflicts with that, I, I wonder if you can just talk a bit about what is the impetus for change here? I mean, do we see ethical decision-making processes starting top-down from, from industry, or is it coming from, from <clears throat> citizens in, in a more bottom-up way, from, uh, for lack of a better phrase, I guess? Well, I'd have to say it's probably more bottom-up, driven by concerned citizens, um, research organizations that start to find out about the risks of certain things, like our own organization, uh, the NIH, Although there are some enlightened companies that are really trying to be environmentally and public health conscious, um, industry is mostly driven by consumer demand and consumer preferences. So if consumers want something BPA-free or they want something to be non-GMO or something like that, then you start to see uh, companies respond to that market demand, but very often that mark and demand is not going to happen unless there's been this prior ethical discussion that we've talked about. Are these ethical discussions um, happening more quickly now than they were in the past? I wonder just, is the dialogue getting more efficient between consumers and companies when it comes to um, implementing change? I think it is. I think the internet is, is largely responsible for that because the internet allows consumer groups to organize so much more easily than they could in the past. You see blog posts and different websites. People post things on Facebook. Because it can be so fast, then people can leverage companies. They can get them to change pretty quickly because they're, I think the internet does increase consumer power in that way. David Resnick is a bioethicist at the National Institutes of Health. Uh, David, thank you so much for helping us break this down. I really appreciate it. Thank you. If you're wondering about the impact of PFAS in your state, we'll have links to more information at our website, nextnewengland.org. After the break, another pollution story. Scientists are trying to track down tons of missing plastic in the ocean. Plus, co-housing communities. They're not hippie communes, or are they? It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. I'm Patrick Scahill. Welcome back. Every year, people dump millions of tons of plastic into the ocean. Some of it washes up on beaches, some of it floats on the surface, some of it breaks down, but a lot of it is just missing. WBUR's Barbara Moran met up with some scientists who are trying to track it down. A basement storeroom in Falmouth holds one of the rarest collections in the world. These are some of our older ones here. Yeah, these are older, so... Jessica Donahue, an oceanographer with the Sea Education Association, slides a cardboard box off a shelf, opens the lid, and pulls out a Ziploc bag. So here's one that has a lot of pieces in it. There's blues and greens and yellows, and there's a bunch of little fragments, and it just looks almost like a 
a bunch of ugly confetti. The ugly confetti is part of an archive of microplastics, the largest of its kind in the world. Gathered over 30 years, the plastic bits are stored in thousands of bags and tiny glass bottles, each marked with when and where they were found floating in the ocean. Oh, yeah, that's got some more stuff, some bunch of line and some filaments in there. Donahue says this trash is a scientific treasure. Data like this is super important. There's, there's still a lot of unknowns and of how much plastic is out there. Where is it? What form is it in? And until we can answer all of those questions, we can't really start knowing all of the impacts. Scientists do know some things about microplastics, like where they're floating on the ocean surface, mostly in five accumulation zones around the globe, like the famous Pacific Gyre. They also have a pretty good guess at how much is floating, up to a couple hundred thousand metric tons. That sounds like a lot, but it's only a fraction of the plastic dumped in the ocean each year, about 1 to 5 percent. And that missing plastic is a mystery. We haven't found where the big reservoirs are. That's Kara Lavender-Law, another oceanographer with the Sea Education Association. We don't know if most of the plastic is really in these giant lost fishing nets that are drifting around, or if most of it is in stuff that's sitting on beaches, whether it's household trash or fishing buoys that have blown ashore. And we don't know how much is sitting on the seafloor. And where it ends up matters. Until we know where it is, we're not going to know what organisms or communities are being affected. Some scientists suspect that many microplastics may not be floating on the surface or sinking to the bottom. Some evidence suggests that they're hiding somewhere in between. So what we're finding is that uh, as the plastics sink, they actually they sink and then they, they all reach sort of like a layer. Ethan Edson studied marine science at Northeastern and stayed on to research ocean plastics. He says it's important to find out how much plastic is hovering in this layer. This is the area where uh, basically the entire food chain in the ocean occurs. So when we're talking about um, different fish that are ingesting plastics or different organisms that are ingesting plastics, it's worse if the plastic is um, in the part of the water column where they're doing most of their feeding. There is evidence that you can do harm by feeding animals microplastics. That's Kara Lavender-Law again. In lab experiments, microplastics do things like disrupt feeding and impair reproduction. What's really hard is to say, well, how does that relate to what's actually happening out in the ocean? That's partly because the traditional way of gathering plastic samples, dragging a net alongside a ship, only collects plastic near the surface. That's where researchers like Edson come in. At Northeastern, he designed an experimental tool to analyze microplastic pollution underwater. Edson hopes that someday devices like his might be small and cheap enough to be deployed by ships all over the ocean. If we do determine that these plastics are having a, a detrimental impact, um, we need better ways to manage and monitor and make sure that plastics are below a certain level like any other contaminant. So we need to figure out more efficient ways to, to quantify these plastics. Because to find out what the plastic is doing to the oceans and to us, first we need to find out where it is. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Barbara Moran. A few other fascinating and scary tidbits about microplastics. There are likely tiny pieces of plastic in your table salt. That's the finding of several scientific reports, including one recent study in the journal Environmental Science and Technology. It estimates 90% of sea salt contains microplastics. Another study says you're probably eating tens of thousands of microplastic particles every year. Health implications are unclear, but the particles have become so ubiquitous they're falling from the sky. 
Scientists have detected microplastics in remote locations in the Pyrenees Mountains in France and the Arctic. We're going to shift gears now and talk about co-housing. Co-housing is an intentional community of sorts, one where people live in private homes clustered around shared spaces. The idea started in Denmark in the 1960s, and now the Co-Housing Association of the United States says there are more than 250 communities nationwide. Ben Brock Johnson lives in a co-housing community in Massachusetts. He's co-host and senior producer of the WBUR Reddit podcast Endless Thread. And this fall, he wrote a piece about his living situation. Ben joins us to make the case for co-housing. Ben, welcome to Next. Thanks for having me. So you write in your article that you like to joke that you live in a hippie commune. So we're just going to get this right out of the way. Um, Is that just a joke? (laughs) I mean, it is and it isn't, right? Um, It it gives people an understanding that I'm living what is slightly an alternative lifestyle, um, but uh, it, it really is a joke at the end of the day in terms of um, what it's like. It's very normal. It feels very normal. And it, it feels like a way of living that should actually be much more common. Um, everything from sharing resources reasonably, like lawnmowers and um, trucks that you need to take to the dump. Um, but at the same time, um, having your own private space so talk more about some of the shared objects that are within this community and talk more, I guess, about some of the private spaces that are in this community. Yeah, so um, so my particular community, uh, Pioneer Valley Co-Housing in Massachusetts and North Amherst, uh, has a lot of private homes. It has 32 units. They're in some ways smaller and some corners have been cut, but you get that cost back um, in, for instance, the Common House, which is this uh, large building that sits on the property that is a shared resource for everyone who lives here, um, currently about 85 people. And in that Common House is a dining room that we, we all share uh, for common meals that we have uh, twice, sometimes three times a week, um, a mezzanine where there's you know a little home theater and a lot of books. There's a library in there. Um, there's a gym in there, which I work out in with my dad. And so you get a lot of common area back, even though your living space, your domicile is a little bit smaller than you might expect it to be in a regular living situation. You mentioned uh, working out with your father in one of the shared areas. Can you talk a bit about um, your family's history and and how that sort of brought you uh, to this co-housing living situation? Yeah. So, I mean, I think my parents, you know, are as close to actual hippies as as anyone in my family history, although they would, I think, consider themselves more like activists. Um, And that activism has played out in in a wish to to have a, a reduced impact on the planet. And about seven years ago, when they both really officially retired, they decided to make good on that wish. Um, and they made the move. Um, my brother and I were a little bit skeptical. Um, but after visiting here a couple of times, we really discovered that it wasn't a place where people were up in your grill, so to speak. And then it was very natural. I mean, they, they had neighbors who dropped by to... to you know, offer help or say hello or visit them or whatever in a, in a really natural way. But in general, it's like a really quiet place. It's not like people are like peering in your windows all hours of the day. Everyone here has their own lives. And, um, you know, they moved here and were very happy. And then when my partner and I moved up here from New York City a couple of years ago, when we had uh, children of our own, um, 
it just made sense to try to be close to my parents. That's why we were moving to the area anyway. And then when a house opened up in the community, we figured, what the heck, let's try it. Um, and it's just been wonderful, I have to say. My parents do technically live the f like in a house that is the furthest across this 26-acre property, so I think that <laughs> helps a little bit. Um, and, and they're very respectful of our personal, you know, our, our privacy and our personal time and, and stuff like that. But it's just wonderful to be able to say, hey, you know, my wife and I would love to go to a movie tonight. Can can you guys come over? And again, that's very natural. People do that all the time. But the difference is for my parents, they're literally down the footpath. Well, yeah. And I have to say, so I think we are at uh, similar stages in our lives. It sounds like uh, I, I have a, a young son myself who's uh, just over a year old. My uh, wife and I just bought our first house a few years ago. And I'm Congrats. a bit well. Thank you, yeah. but but I don't know what the heck I'm doing on either front. <laughs> uh, <laughs> same, same. <laughs> and, and, and you know, I find myself as I listening listen to you thinking, this living situation could make sense for someone uh, who's at this stage of their life right now, where they don't know what the heck they're doing with their kids. They're trying their best. They don't know how the heck to fix this plumbing issue in their house. They're trying their best. <laughs> Why not rely yeah. on the the knowledge of your neighbors? Yeah, absolutely. And and what's interesting about my community in particular is that a lot of the people who founded this community are still here, which I think is a testament to the, the fact that the community has worked um, in the, the 25 years now that it's been um, a, an official built property. Um, I have a neighbor two houses down that designed all of the electrical in all of the buildings, <laughs> and he has legit credentials. He's he's an, an electrical engineer, and he he knows what he's doing. Mm -hmm. He works on radio telescopes, but he's but he's also um, someone who who I can go and say, hey, like the lights in my bathroom and like <laughs> my kitchen just stopped working. Like, what do I do? You know, one of the th key things about co housing and, and specifically about my community is it's really physically designed to encourage human interaction and and um well and can and i again, actually just I think, can, can i stop you yeah, there sorry go ahead so, yeah, um, yeah. that's one of the scary things to me i will say and um, I, this is like a therapy <laughs> session for me i'm i'm a person who's <laughs> sure. who's extremely introverted um and yep. I, I wonder if there's a potential drawback there i mean do you have to have a, a, a certain personality type to to really engage with and live in one of these communities yeah, this is a question that I've thought a lot about since moving here. Um, I, I'm a pretty outgoing, gregarious person. And, and so in some ways, it's, you know, um, it's easy for me to live here. My partner, my wife is, is much more introverted. Um, and, um, and so there's a different way in which we interact uh, with the community. We're both pretty involved. But, um, but I would say no. I mean, there are people here who are incredibly introverted and do not interact with the community almost at all. They have their own private lives. Um, and so I think really this community fits all personality types. There is an increased level of personal interaction. I do think that that's true. And it's not quite as simple as a more traditional American situation where you can hate your neighbor's guts and basically never have to interact with them if you don't want to, except over some disputes about your fence and what they do and what tree they cut down and whatever. But, but at the same time, you know, in our community, those disputes, 
they get mediated and they get worked out. And there's a there's a longer view understanding, I think, between people here that, you know what, this person, they may not be the same as me and they may kind of rub me the wrong way sometimes, but we're both here for a long period of time. And and let's find a way to interact um, that is positive. Do you see yourself and your partner staying in this type of community um, for the rest of your life? Yeah, I, I mean, I it's a tough it's a tough question to answer. Um, right, what I will say is my is right now, my plan is to do whatever I can to stay here for as long as humanly possible. Um, I, I, you know, and it sounds like a crazy person maybe who has fully drunk the Kool Aid, but you know, I I do actually. I have. Ben Brock Johnson lives in a co-housing community in Massachusetts. He wrote a piece about co-housing in WBUR's blog, Cognoscenti, and he co-hosts the podcast Endless Thread. Ben, thanks so much for talking to us on Next. Yeah, thanks for having me. Come uh, come by anytime. I'll borrow your wrench. <laughs> Sounds good. We turn now to rural Maine. Because of funding cuts, programs and shelters serving homeless youth have closed in several small communities. With fewer resources, teens in rural areas have had to face a tough choice, stay within the community they know or move to an unfamiliar city that might offer more support. Maine Public Radio's Robbie Feinberg reports. For youth who live in Penobscot and surrounding counties, the search for a safe place to stay often begins on the doorstep of Shaw House in Bangor. It's a shelter serving kids who are homeless or at risk. Inside, draped across a couch, is Kobe Brown. He's 18 years old. I don't know. I'm kind of in a tight situation because of past uh, things that have happened in my life. You know, I kind of moved around a lot. Placement, replacement, you know, hospitals, group homes, foster home. Brown was born in Boston, but moved to Maine as a child. He says much of his youth was chaotic and abusive, which led state agencies to remove him from his home when he was young. His treatment by family made him angry and upset, he says, and he expressed his feelings through emotional outbursts and by getting into fights. Yeah, I have anger issues and I'm still working on I still have to work on them. He moved from town to town around rural York County, then to New Hampshire and Portland. Despite the constant turmoil, Brown says he found a community of close friends in southern Maine. But after another angry outburst at a shelter, he says he was asked to leave. That's how he wound up at Shaw House, where he's been living for the past few months. Brown says it was difficult to leave his friends in southern Maine. But I still cared for him and I worried about him and I didn't want to leave them there. The decision to move can be necessary for some teens to get needed services, such as case management, counseling, shelter, and transportation, which are already limited in many parts of the state. University of New England professor Thomas McLaughlin, who conducted a survey of homeless youth in rural Maine four years ago, says despite their circumstances, many don't want to leave their surroundings. The community knew them. They knew the community. There was a desire to kind of make it work. So it might mean that they would couch surf, move around, work at different places, but all of them seemed motivated to stay in school, motivated to kind of stay connected to their community. The trick is 
and we still haven't figured it out, how do you serve a young person who's homeless in a very rural community without them coming to one of the urban centers? Chris Bicknell is the executive director of the New Beginnings Youth Shelter in Lewiston. How do you provide safety and support for them where they are so they don't have to leave their school, they don't have to leave their other natural supports like their, their coach or their band teacher or you know whoever it is that's their natural support in that community, whether it's their other close relatives? We haven't quite figured that out. Funding challenges have exacerbated the problem. Rumford Group Homes, which runs emergency homeless shelters and provides transitional housing in Oxford County, used to offer a maternal group home program for pregnant and parenting youth. But Executive Director Melissa McEntee says the federal government didn't provide funding last year. She says while the organization tries to help kids stay in the region, it's now had to refer some teens to other parts of the state. We're happy to refer and we're happy to link them to what they need, but it's also a little bit distressing that we are, you know, telling them, okay, but if you do go there, it's going to be an hour away. That's difficult to tell kids sometimes. One new approach to addressing the needs of rural youth is being explored in southern Maine. It's called a host home program in which volunteer families open their doors to teens until they can be connected to services and get back on their feet. But Chris Bicknell of New Beginnings in Lewiston says one of the biggest challenges is finding the money to pay for staff to recruit host families and eventually move the kids into a more stable environment. And that has to be a mobile force that can go to whatever town needs that, right? And so that's expensive. That's like three full-time staff people, all their travel time, and the sheer footprint of the state, right? There are lots and lots of little towns that have potentially many young people who are struggling with housing crises. But for some teens, moving to a new area can be for the best. At Shaw House in Bangor, Kobe Brown says he's learning to manage his anger. And after years of moving around, he's finally settling down. This is basically home. Not literally here, but it's like, you know what I mean? It helps. Not sleeping on the street. Not out in the cold or rain. Actually get some food and water. Sometimes it's depressing, but other times I like being here because I got friends that care about me. And Brown says he's getting support from Shaw House and is even looking at going back to school. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Robbie Feinberg. Coming up, an experimental cellist plays eerie, spacious music. And we'll talk about the things we get right about Thanksgiving and the things we get totally wrong. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. This is music from Burlington-based musician Lauren Costello. She plays the cello in several bands, and she also writes and performs her own music. Her solo pieces are spacious, ambient compositions that weave together cello, guitar, field recordings, and singing. Vermont Public Radio's Liam Elder Connors has this profile. 
Lauren Costello is sitting in her living room, holding her cello. The fingers of her left hand lightly rest on the strings. With her right hand, she draws her bow across the instrument. So I can play just the cello here. She taps an effect pedal at her feet to make it sound like she's playing in a cavernous hall. It kind of has an eerier sound, which I like. Costello begins making loops of cello, layering the notes to create motifs that twist and bend into each other. So that's just kind of a quick, like, build a group of harmonies, I guess. Costello's process for composing feels a little like making a sculpture, but instead of using clay, she uses sound. She performs under a nine-letter, unpronounceable moniker. O-U-Z-K-X-Q-L-Z-N. Unfortunately, I don't like any of the ways it sounds if it might be pronounced. <laughs> so it's not it's not pronounced, but I like the way it looks. So it's sort of, it's like a, to be seen but not heard. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. I don't know. I, I I always like feel self-conscious that it it might be kind of like a pretentious thing. It's definitely not intended like that at all. Her pieces are winding, cyclical experiences that often explore one specific theme, like politics, philosophy, and most recently, math. My favorite description of my music that I've uh, heard or read um, was saying that it feels like I'm walking through a blizzard um, that's gorgeous but also difficult to walk through. Costello, who's 36, grew up outside of Philadelphia and played cello when she was younger, though she stopped in high school. She picked up the instrument again when she went to college in Boston. I just kind of missed playing, so I started, um, I rented a cello and just started playing for fun as like an outlet. Um, And then I met some people who were musicians and we kind of started a band together. When that band stopped playing, Costello started making solo music. But by then, she was burnt out of living in Boston and decided to follow several family members who moved to Vermont. At first, she didn't plan to stay long, but Costello says she ended up falling in love with the state. I kind of just forgot how much I loved nature until I moved to Vermont and then it was so accessible and easy. It's just like a bike ride a way to get to a whole other world. And definitely, I think my music incorporates the experience of exploring a world like that, um, solitary or with a bunch of friends. Costello's been in Vermont for about 10 years. For her day job, she works in customer service at a local grocery store. Costello says she'd like to do music full-time, but isn't sure that she could do that by just performing in Vermont. One challenge she's come across is getting people to come out and see shows. But there's definitely opportunities, I think, to come in and out of the state. I could see, like, maybe hitting a certain point where it's like you need to maybe try to progress outside of Vermont, but I think it's doable to make it like your base. But overall, Costello says the music community she's found in the state is supportive and a place where you can try new things. Just being surrounded by people who are challenging themselves and trying new things and being really innovative, it's just so inspiring and it's just easy to 
want to be a part of that or get caught up in that energy. One of those people in the scene is Ren Kitts. The two met about four and a half years ago at a music venue where Kitts worked. The two got to talking and exchanged music. Kitts says Costello's music stood out to him. It sounded really wonderful. It was eerie. I think like uh, spooky and, and slow. They started jamming, and Kit says making music together was easy. And she's got such a good ear. Like, she listens her. The first times we were jamming, sometimes she wouldn't play at all, and just like, I just need to listen, and kind of really enjoyed that she was kind of taking the time to really listen to what was, what was going on in a tune. Costello says she's working on recording some pieces she's already finished. She says she's also putting together an ambient album that she hopes to finish up by the end of the year. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Liam Elder Connors. Our final guest today is James Lowen. He's a sociologist and the author of Lies My Teacher Told Me, Everything Your American History Textbook Got Wrong. He joins us by phone to talk about some of the misconceptions surrounding Thanksgiving. Jim, welcome to Next. Hey, I'm glad to be with you. So let's start out by establishing the basic facts we learn about Thanksgiving that are right. So what are, what are some of the things we get right about this holiday? Well, yeah, I was going to say some things are right. Um, the pilgrims did come to Massachusetts in 1620. I think we do say that. Uh, they did uh, have help from Native Americans, particularly from this guy named Squanto, uh, in learning how to plant stuff, how to harvest fish, how to make a living in this, uh, to them, new world. And they did, after finally learning some of these things, have a big feast of Thanksgiving. And Native, it's not clear exactly if uh, Native Americans were invited ahead of time, but they happened into the affair, and they brought five deer. We know all these things are true. And then they showed the, the uh, I'm going to call them pilgrims, but then nobody did. But we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but anyway, they showed the pilgrims some of their games and tests of strength, and the pilgrims did the same with them, and they had a good picnic for two or three days. You had mentioned the pilgrims didn't actually call themselves that at the time. Uh, no. what, what did they call themselves? Well, about a third of them called themselves separatists, and they were meaning separate from the Church of England, and they were, of course, coming from uh, Holland or the Netherlands, which they had gone to in order to enjoy religious freedom. And so one of the things we get wrong is people say, well, they came to America for religious freedom. Well, uh-uh. They, they had it in uh, Holland. They actually came to America partly to establish the opposite of religious freedom, and they proceeded to do that. They, they established a theocracy, that is to say, uh, with them in charge, and you pretty much had to be a Protestant Christian, and their kind of Protestant Christian, I mean, uh, nascent Methodists and Quakers, uh, they got put to death or put to exile for not having the same religious ideas as as the separatists. When we think about Thanksgiving uh, today, particularly in America, um, uh, part of our typical picture of this is that is it's a it's a harmonious day. It's yeah. a, it's a happy beginning of the U.S. What's wrong with that picture? Well, it can be a harmonious day, and that would be great. Uh, however, there are a few things wrong with the, with the picture. One is, uh, it isn't the beginning of the United States. Uh, 
if you believe that you have to speak English to be the beginning of the United States, well, then that would be Virginia in 1607. One of the stories about the beginning of this country is uh, Plymouth Rock in Massachusetts and this, yes. uh, this idea <laughs> that uh, when settlers arrived there, they found land that was, was already settled, but it was unoccupied. So what had happened in that situation? So what had happened in Plymouth and uh, across coastal New England was a tremendous plague in about 1617, two or three years before the people we now call the pilgrims, the English, uh, arrived. Uh, the only living descendant of the natives was Squanto, who uh, survived the 1617 plague because he was in England at the time. He kind of hitches a ride with uh, somebody going from what is now Great Britain, to uh, uh, Massachusetts in order to get to his hometown. And when he gets there, he makes the astounding discovery that every person there is a corpse. And so it's at this point that he throws in his lot with the with the pilgrims because uh, it's still his town in a way. Uh, and he's their intermediary between the Wampanoag Indians and the, and, uh, the British. Your book, Lies My Teacher Told Me, uh, this first came out, I believe, in 1995. Uh, it's it been, been reprinted twice since then. Um, has the book had the impact that you wanted it to have? Gosh, yes, in some ways. I mean, it's still selling 100 copies a day right now. And it's also had a big impact on teachers. And it's assigned in a lot of ed schools to, for people who are going to teach U.S. history or social studies. What it did not do... It did not make much impact on the publishers, except in one area, and that is about Columbus. Uh, not the pilgrims, but Columbus. And when we talk about uh, publishers, we're talking about textbook publishers? Yes, we are. That was James Lowen, author of the book Lies My Teacher Told Me. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by Morgan Springer. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. We had help this week from Al Wadarski at WUNC in North Carolina. Music this week is by Todd Merrill, Goodnight Blue Moon, The Wolf Sisters, and Jim Lee, and Audio Jane. I'm Patrick Scahill. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and The Public's Radio.